So in the late 1700s, there was a deadly outbreak of a disease that just tore through all of Europe. Um, we can read about it in the history books now, but we know it's known as smallpox. Now, what we may not understand, because it's been so long since we've really experienced smallpox, both in Europe, but also here in America, that it was a devastating disease. In fact, it says the statistics show that nearly 400,000 people died every year from this disease as it just ravaged through all of Europe and the United States of America. When families did get it, one out of every three people turned, if they didn't die from it, they ended up becoming blind from this disease. And so you can imagine the fear that wiped and just was all about the country because families were scared to death that this disease would land on the doorsteps of their home because here's what we also know. Looking back in just history, nearly 80% of all kids that ever contracted smallpox, they died from it. And so what would happen is when this disease, smallpox, would enter in a community, moms and dads would just huddle their kids at home by themselves, much like we experienced in the very, very beginning part of COVID, and they would just hold their whole family inside their house together, hoping and praying that no one in that household got that disease. And there was no cure for it. There was no vaccine for it. There was nothing that could be done besides people just waiting and seeing if maybe they just were out, able to outlive this deadly disease called smallpox. Nothing was done until a man by the name of Edward Jenner had an idea. Edward Jenner was in the medical field, and he began noticing that there were certain people that it seemed like that they would not ever get smallpox, and these were the milkmaids. Milkmaids were the ladies that worked on the dairy farms, and they would be the ones that were responsible for milking the cows. And there was also another disease going on around this time, a much milder form of smallpox, and it was called cowpox. And cowpox was actually the animal form of smallpox that mainly stayed within the cattle. But the milkmaids seemed to always get this disease called cowpox because they're close proximity and they would have some slight boils but that's all that really happened to them and Edward realized that it was the milkmaids who seemed invincible to this disease called smallpox so he had this idea a brand new idea that no one had ever thought about at that time in history and he said what if what if we took the boils that was found in cowpox and we purposely exposed the rest of the community not just the milkmaids but we purposely exposed the rest of the population to cowpox and maybe just maybe this would be like this immunity they would build up from it and so people you can imagine were really leery because no one had ever thought about exposing themselves purposely to something like that but lo and behold as he began exposing people to cowpox virus to these boils they developed an immunity to smallpox in fact, it was such a groundbreaking kind of medical idea that it was given the name vaccine. If you know Spanish, vaca, that's cow, and that's where we get the word vaccine. That was the very first vaccine that was ever developed. Now, we know there's lots of vaccines out there today, right? There's vaccines for mumps, there's vaccines for measles. It has really eradicated most of these diseases that we think about. In fact, if we think three or four years ago, when COVID ran rampant in our country and around the world, they were waiting for the vaccine that would make people immune to it. But yet, it was vaccines that really saved people's lives. Now, there's another disease that's running rampant today. Now, this disease that is running rampant today, there is no particular medical vaccine for it, but it is a disease that is literally wiping people out. In fact, let me just give the name of this disease that I'm talking about. The disease is not measles. The disease is not mumps. It's not even influenza that many of us just recently got shots for. It is affluenza. 
affluenza. Have you seen that word before? We use it oftentimes when it comes to wealth. And here's what it says. It's the preoccupation of money, extreme materialism, and continual consumerism. In fact, here's some symptoms if you have affluenza that you may experience. You may experience a feelings of guilt. You may also experience a lack of motivation because you have so much just wealth and margin and, and materialism in your life. And there's the main symptom. It's a chronic dissatisfaction with your current situation. Now, I know what's going on right now. You're rolling your eyes at me. I can tell. Okay, here I'm talking about measles and mumps and smallpox and all these deadly diseases. And I try to compare affluenza to those deadly diseases. But can we be really realistic right now? Affluenza is a problem in our society. In fact, affluenza is wiping out daily families and individuals and all parts of society. Because people get so focused on give me, give me, give me more, more, more that it so consumes their life and we begin losing focus of the really important things in life. And so affluenza is a really de real deal. In fact, it's not something that's just kind of crept up here in America. Affluenza has been around even since the days of Jesus. In fact, Jesus has a story and a, a situation in his life that, that he told a story about that has to do with affluenza. And as we're continuing our generosity series, let me take you to Luke chapter 12 and let me tell you Jesus' story about affluenza. And how, here's how it goes in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse thir 13. Then someone called from the crowd, the Bible says. So Jesus had been sitting around. It doesn't say specifically right there, but we can imagine that he had done what he usually does when there's a crowd. He'd probably done some healing in there. Maybe there's a blind person that couldn't see. Maybe someone couldn't walk and he'd help them. He'd probably done some teaching. And there must have been this pause in the moment as Jesus had the crowd around him. Because it says, then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother, divide our father's estate with me. This is one of those times I wish I could be in the crowd because I wonder if everybody looked at this guy going, dude, what are you doing, okay? We don't care about your personal problems, your family finances. We're worried about the healings and the teaching that Jesus has going, got going on. But for whatever reason, this gentleman thought he needed to interrupt all that was going on and ask this, Jesus this very important question. And Jesus replied to him. He says, friend, who made me judge over you to decide such things as that? So while everybody's kind of going, I can't believe he just interrupted Jesus, Jesus kind of has a drop the mic type of moment going, hey, this is not what this is all about. I'm not the judge and the jury over your family estate. But then Jesus went on to say this. He said, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own, Jesus said. And then he told them a story. Here's what was going on there. When Jesus looked at this man, but he's really speaking to the whole entire crowd, and he said those comments or those words, guard against greed, he was really saying this one, guard your life against affluenza. He was speaking about then 2,000 years ago about the very thing that you and I struggle with in our society today. He recognized that what was at stake was not the man's inheritance, but his heart. The man wasn't interrupting Jesus. He wasn't stopping what was going on to say, hey, I need an answer to my question. He was really exposing what his heart was. And his heart was saying, my brother's not giving me all that I want because I want more and more and more. And so after Jesus and this man had this little conversation, this, 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 this dialogue going on, Jesus looked at all the crowd. And he goes, let me tell you a story. He goes, there was this man who was a very wealthy man, a very successful man. He was an entrepreneur of his day, and he farmed, and he did lots of things just to bring in stuff. 
And one year he had a very bumper crop. And as he looked at all the crops and he looked at his barns, he thought and realized himself, I don't have barns big enough to put all my bumper crop in. And so here's what the man said. Jesus told him this story. You can go home and read in the same Luke chapter 12. He said, I don't have big enough barns to put all my bumper crops. So he said, I've got an idea. The rich man said, I'm going to have some workers tear down all of my small barns, and I'm going to have them build bigger barns, and that way all this bumper crop and all these goods and all this stuff that I have, I can just keep putting in my barns, and I'll have more, and I'll have more, and I'll have more. And I first heard Jesus tell that story. I read that story that Jesus said, and I thought, that's a really wise man, right? I mean, there's no sense like having a bumper crop and letting it go to waste. Like, if you have this excess stuff, doesn't it make sense that you go open up another bank account to put the more stuff in? Doesn't it make sense that you evaluate what stocks are going good so you can put that stuff in so you can have more and more and more? That's exactly what the man was doing. And so when I was first reading the story, I'm ready as Jesus tells this story, then to look at the man and go, and that's a smart man. That's a wise man that's taking care of his stuff in a really efficient way. But look with me in verse 20 how Jesus responds to the man in the story. But God said to him, the wealthy man, the man that was building bigger barns to put all of this stuff in, he, God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night, then who will get everything you worked for? If you were here with us last week and we looked at the David's perspective of wealth and David, the King David realized that as much wealth as he had, one day when he would die, he would take none of it with him. And God's looking at this man that seems to be making a very economically wise decision. And he goes, you're not very smart. In fact, he goes, you're a fool because what are you going to do with all that stuff in your barns when you die? And then Jesus went on to say this, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Let me read that to you again. In fact, they oftentimes say the best sermon is a short sermon. If this was going to be a really good sermon, I said just stop right there because it says it all right there. Because Jesus says this, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. See, Jesus was not saying that wealth at any level is bad. Okay? He's not saying, well, if you get this much money, it's bad. But if you have this much money, it's not so bad. He wasn't making any comment about wealth itself. Wealth is not bad. Jesus also wasn't proposing that the man or us, as we read this story, that we take a vow of, pro of, of poverty. And I can tell you this one, he even was advocating that we should not enjoy, and he was not advocating that we should not enjoy the pleasures of life. This is not what that story is about. Jesus was declaring that we should prioritize, prioritize our relationship with God over our money and our stuff. So as we think about generosity, this man was saying more and more and more. But what Jesus was saying, if you take more and more and more and you forget about your deep relationship with God, you're missing the very point of the blessings that God gives you in life. That Jesus was taking the man and taking us and he goes, your focus needs to be on your intimate relationship with God, not the excessive stuff that you have in your barns, in your garages, in your bank accounts, in your storage units. He goes, it is about God first, and then everything else should fall into place. In fact, if Jesus was using the vernacular that we're using today, going back to this word affluenza, that's like this disease that consumes us, I think he'd be saying this one, every one of us need to get the vaccine against 
affluenza. You know, I was thinking back this past week about when my kids were young and we'd have to take them get shots. They're different vaccines. And here's what I know how it happened in the Smith household. Denise and I would always play paper, rock, scissor to who would have to take them, right? Because you knew it wasn't going to be a fun day. You knew you better have suckers. You better have Happy Meals planned afterwards because they were not going to like it. It was bad enough the first time they went and you saw your baby get that shot and cry, cry, cry. But all of a sudden, those kids got smart enough. Next time I would go to the doctor, he's going to, she's going to poke me with the same thing. It's going to hurt again. And so Denise and I used to take these, we're playing paper, rock, scissor to see would have to take them. And more, whoever lost would have to take them. And it was a horrible day for us. And you're going, well, weren't you a horrible parent to, to inflict pain on your kids like that? Weren't you a horrible parent to inflict some kind of discomfort on your kids like that, knowing they would cry and not like it? But yet every time we took them, why? Because we knew what we were giving them would actually be saving the very lives of them. And when it comes to the vaccine of generosity, the vaccine of affluenza, the vaccine that we need for it is this very topic that we're talking about in this series, generosity. Because generosity is the very thing that keeps us from being so focused on what we have and more and more and more. It's in generosity that we understand that God really owns it all anyway, and so we're just managers of it. It's in the generosity that we're going, God, as my barns start getting full and I begin to share it, it makes sure that I'm guarding myself against this very disease that we call affluenza. And so here's what I'd like to do today. I would like to expose you to a vaccine. I would like to cause a little baby discomfort in you because the discomfort is actually meant to save our lives, not just physically, but even so, more so spiritually. Because I believe scripture outlines for us, there is a vaccine as we think about generosity. There are specific things that we can take. There are specific things that we can do in our life to guard ourselves against this idea of give me more, give me more, give me more. Because the minute we buy into it, it consumes us so much that God becomes less and our more becomes more. So here I want to say, give you four. If you're taking outlines in your notes there, here they are. Four specific vaccine type things that you can implement, use in your life to make sure to guard yourself against affluenza. Here's the first one. And they all have to do with giving because that's generosity, right? Priority giving is the first type of vaccine that we should all be taking. Priority giving. When Aunt Edward Jenner discovered this idea of vaccine and began to expose people to the cowpox so that would protect them from, from smallpox, here's what he realized. That the vaccine, the key to the vaccine is to apply it before you ever get the disease. His vaccine from the cowpox, if he waited to apply it to the people after they came down and they had smallpox, it would not do any good whatsoever. They had to be exposed to it before the disease ever crept up on them. And when it comes to generosity, you and I must realize that our generosity must begin in our lives before this idea of affluenza ever approaches us. Because somehow there's this idea like, I don't have it right now because I don't have too much. But when I have more, then I'll be more generous because that's when I should. If we're not generous in a little, we'll never be generous in much. And so our priority giving, when you say, this is a thing that I'll do as soon as I get my money, as soon as I get my paycheck, as soon as I get my time, as soon as I get whatever margin I need, I will be the very first that I give for my resources. Now, I have to be honest with you. Every year, I usually get my flu shot. Every single year, like clockwork, October, November, I'm in there and I'm like, doctor, I know it's going to hurt, but give it to me. 
But this year, I have not gotten my flu shot. Not because I'm against the vaccine. Not because I don't think I need it this year. You know how, why I haven't gotten it? Because it hasn't big, big enough priority. We're still trying to figure out, Denise, how we got our new medical insurance when we came here. I'm still trying to figure out who my doctor is and where the doctor is. And I got the church stuff going on. We've moved to a new house. And we have all these things going on in our life. And it simply hasn't been a priority in my life. Now, do I believe in the flu shot? Absolutely. Do I believe it would be a great vaccine and a great deterrent for me ever getting the flu? Absolutely. I've done it for years and years and years. I just haven't done it this year because it hasn't been a priority. And here's the bottom line when it comes to generosity. If the generosity vaccine is going to work in our lives to keep us, protect us from affluenza, it's not going to happen unless it's a, a priority in our lives. I mean, we all have priorities, right? Priorities like get out of debt, save for the kids' college, repair the car, save for a down payment for a house, take a vacation, pay off the credit card. We can keep listing all the priorities that we have, but until it becomes a priority before, until generosity becomes a priority, it will never make itself above all those other things because there will always be something ahead of us. Here's the most common reason that most people aren't generous. And they say this, I'm getting my finances in order so I can be generous. Can I just give you a truth and you can write this down in your notes? Priority giving isn't dependent on your finances. Priority giving is dependent on our heart. Priority giving says, God, I've got all these other things I need to put money to. I need to save for this. I need to pay this down. I need to give money over here. Got all these bills I got to pay. But priority giving says this, God, I trust you enough with my life. I trust you enough with my finances that even if it doesn't completely make sense on paper, I'm going to prioritize my generosity enough because my generosity proves that my heart totally, completely trusts in you. There's been very few times in my life and very few times in your life that you probably look at the bank account going, wow, look at all this that I have. You look at your schedule, wow, look at all this time that I have. And you sit around going, I just need to go give some away. When it's sitting in our bank account, when it's sitting on our calendar, they're still going, well, I could give it away, but I could do this with it. I could do this with it. I could do this with it. None of us probably live a life that is so exuberant, just so full of extra that to give it away means nothing to us. We always have something else we could be putting it to. But priority giving, the vaccine to guard us against affluenza says this, but when I prioritize it, it keeps my heart directed in the right way. Here's the most practical way that I've discovered in my life to make sure I have priority giving. That we make sure, Denise and I, for all of our years of our marriage, as soon as we get our paycheck, what's the first thing we pay? Not the rent. Don't go buy groceries. Don't pay off the credit card. Don't put money in savings. The first thing that we always do to make sure our generosity is where it needs to be in our life, to prioritize it, is we write the check for our tithes to the church. Now, you're like, write a check? What is that? Okay, that thing is so dated. Like, what in the world do you mean write a check? So really, we don't write checks anymore, but we've already got it set up, automated payment, that we don't even think about it. It just automatically comes out. And someone looks at us sometimes going, well, that's not much worship. It is worship in our life because it's obedience. And obedience is greater than sacrifice is what the prophet Samuel told Saul. And so priority giving, that's the first type of vaccine. Let me give you the second type of vaccine. The second one, I think, and you can write this in your notes, is percentage giving. 
So we prioritize, make sure we give it first. But the second thing that goes with this vaccine is percentage giving. I did a little research this past week online. I said, what's the best budget? And the best budget online kept saying, do percentage budgeting, do percentage budgeting. And so I clicked on percentage budgeting. And if you don't know what to do with your money, it's a tremendous help. It gives you, and no matter which one you went to, they all seem to be saying the same thing, that you should be spending 25 to 35% of your monthly income on housing. It went on to say this, that transportation should include about 20% of your monthly income. Food should be 10 to 20%. And it lists all the things that you and I spend every single month, and it just keeps listing going, here's how much percentage you should be paying on that. Here's why that's so helpful. Because at some point, you may get ready to go buy a new car. And nobody wants to drive an old car. Nobody wants to drive a not very cool-looking car. And so we go to the dealership, and you pick this car out, and you're going, this thing looks really good. And you start to imagine yourself how good you'll look in that car. And then the dealer, the salesman will come up to you going, yeah, but don't you need this, this, ins, uh, this, this online service there? Don't you need a backup camera? Don't you need, you know, it used to be electric windows. Those come automatic now. Now it's like heated seats, and it starts putting all these extras on there. And all of a sudden, the car that you first looked at that looked within your budget is hundreds of dollars over your budget. But you know what happens by then? That heart has grabbed your heart. You can't imagine your life without that particular car, that particular color, and those particular features. So you're just thinking, it's no longer I need those things, I, or I no longer want those things, I need those things. And so you sit down with the salesman, and he says, okay, it's going to be this much per month or this much for the car, and that thing is shot way out of your budget. Yet you're struggling between want and need as you're thinking about this new car. You know what percentage budgeting does? Percentage budget said, okay, let me see how much it's going to be a month. That does not fit in the percentage that I've marked for transportation, so I can no longer afford and I can't have that car. Percentage giving actually helped your money, direct your money before it's ever spent. I remember when I first got out of college, I was working as a youth pastor making a big $900 a month. And I got out of college, and I had my first big boy's job. I didn't realize how much $900 wasn't. I was living with my mom and dad, so that was cheap. I was going to seminary. And so, as you know, I didn't have a lot of expenses. So I went and bought me a really nice car. That car was like a $500 a month payment 30 years ago. Dude, I look good driving. Okay, don't wow. I looked really good driving that car. And I could afford $500 because I was living with my mother and father going to seminary, and it was no big deal. I still had $500 left over. Until after about three months living with mom and dad after getting out of college, I'm going, this is not where I want to live. But I had so messed up my percentage budget that I had to keep living with mom and dad for several more years until I got married. Now, my wife could pay for me then, so I had to keep living with them until she could pay for things. But, but here's what I'm getting at with percentage budgeting. Percentage budgeting works in our generosity too. Most people, in all these things I looked online, they showed all the different things that you should include in, in, gener or in your percentage budgeting. Very few of them included generosity. But a wise percentage budgeter, before they put how much for a car, how much they put for a home, how much they put for, for anything else, at the very top you put 10% generosity. And everything else falls from that. You might ask the question, Keith, you said 
Is that what I should do? I mean, when generosity, is that how much I should give? That's a great question that people ask all the time. How much should I be when it comes to giving financially from generosity? Here's what I know. When I look in the Old Testament, the Old Testament has lots and lots and lots of passages about giving the tithe, and the tithe equals 10%. So in today's church, when you hear pastors, when you go somewhere, someone says, give 10%, give 10%, that's where it's coming from, Old Testament law. Now, a lot of people will look at the New Testament going, but the New Testament doesn't really talk about the tithe. The New Testament doesn't talk about 10%. So how much should you give now? Because we no longer live in Old Testament days. You're exactly right. There's not a lot of passages about the tithe in the New Testament, and we definitely no longer live under the Old Testament law. But here's what the New Testament does talk about, generosity. And so it makes sense if the New Testament talks about generosity and God is the owner of all things, the Old Testament gave us a principle of 10%. Wouldn't it make sense that we try to carry over that same percentage in our living in New Testament days? In fact, many people think the tithe is the end point. Here's what I suggest to you, and here's what God's convicted me of. The tithe may be more likely to be should, we should consider the beginning point, not the ending point of our generosity. Because remember we said last week, if God is the owner of all things, when we're generous, we're not taking some from mine to give to him or give away for him. We're simply moving the things around in his account. And so the tithe many times is just the beginning. Now, you might say, whoa, second, Keith. Like, I understand priority giving, okay? And there's so generosity, I kind of came into it. I'm not really sure I want to listen to this because I, I just always know the church is always asking for money. But I'm listening to you. But 10%. Wouldn't that be pretty uncomfortable in your budget if you started giving 10%? 10% uncomfortable on generosity. Here's what I would say to that. It is, but colonoscopies are uncomfortable too, but they'll save your life one day too, right? And so it's not about finding this percentage that makes you comfortable. It's finding the percentage that guards your heart from affluenza affluenza this thing that i need more and more and more this thing that says i need my barns built bigger and bigger and bigger and we know how jesus responded to the barns being built you fool think about it this way what if all of a sudden smallpox came back okay what if there's an outbreak of smallpox and so the doctor's saying every child needs to come and get a new vaccine for smallpox because we no longer have to because it's been eradicated but we're in this new season, just pretend smallpox are back. And so you take your small child, you take your grandchild to get this, this vaccine. And the doctor looks at you going, okay, now this smallpox is deadly. It's as deadly as it was in 1700. So in fact, we expect over 400,000 people to die this year. And 80% of all kids that get smallpox will die from it. So it's a serious deal. And the doctor looks at you and says, so you have a beautiful child here. I know you love this child. How much vaccine would you like to give your child? Would you like to give your child maybe just 25% of the recommended dosage and it won't be near as painful and I can use a smaller needle? Or would you want to give 50% and kind of play the odds half and half there? Or would you like me to give your child the full dose of the vaccine that will fully protect your child from the disease? Are you see where I'm going on this story? That's so many times, yes, God, don't let our hearts get just captivated by more and more and more. But yet the very vaccine that will protect us from being taken influenza is to have the vaccine of generosity. But we're going, can I just give a little bit? Isn't that just enough to protect me? 
Now, I realize percentage, some of you are going, oh my gosh, this is just stressing me out. This is just wearing me out because we're kind of at zero percent. Like we don't tithe, we tip sometimes, but we don't really tithe. And so the, even the thought of prioritizing, even giving some percentage, is just like, ooh, I, I, I got to leave in church. This has not been a good day. And now I feel guilty because I'm not giving 10%. Let me kind of free you up for a second. I'm just suggesting 10% because it's things I see in Scripture. The percentage of your generosity is between you and God. And so if you're not giving anything right now, maybe you start at 1% knowing eventually you'd like to move to more. And so don't leave here feeling guilty because you're not giving 10%. Simply leave here challenged and go before God and say, God, here's my life. Here's my heart. What would you like to do with me with generosity? And let God give you the correct percentage for your own family. But percentage and prioritized giving are two of the vaccines that will protect you and I from affluenza. Let me give you just a couple more here. Progressive giving. This is the third one, progressive giving. Now, for those that are already participating in prioritized giving and those that are already participating in percentage giving, this is for you. This is the ameners. This is the one that you're saying, preach it, pastor, preach it. This is for you, okay? Progressive giving says this, that regularly we should consider bumping up our percentage. So if you're a pretend percenter, consider going, God, would you like me to give 11%? If you're already giving like 12% going, God, do you only bump that up to 13 or 14%? Again, the conversation is between you and God. But it's you just continually checking your heart going, is my heart becoming more and more and more generous? You know, if you go back to bacteria and to diseases, many times bodies, people get, get um, tolerant of the antibiotics. And so what happens? The doctors have to up the percentage of the medicine they give you to make you where you will um, fight off that bacteria. That's the same way it works in percentage. I think about the story that Jesus was sitting in the temple one day watching people. And back in the days of Jesus, they had boxes like we have up here for offering. And people would walk to the front of the temple to give their offering. And there were some rich people. They dropped some big checks in here and some big coins in here. And he just watched these rich people drop some stuff in. And he tells us in Mark chapter 12 that one time an older lady walked up. And she had two small coins, and she put it in the box. And it was obvious the amount of money she was putting in the box is so much less than what these other people were putting in. And Jesus looked at his disciples in Mark chapter 12 and says, and she gave the most. Jesus was commenting, it's not the amount, it's the percentage that he looks at. And so percentage giving is a great way that we can fight off affluence in our life. Yeah, in your notes there says this, progressive giving helps you fight against the tendency to build bigger barns. Ouch. Can I say that one again? Progressive giving helps you fight against the tendency to build bigger barns. Here's the fourth and last one, purposeful giving. Purposeful giving, here's the definition I give for purposeful giving. The giving beyond your prioritized and percentage giving. Now, it's all purposeful, right? Because when you give, it's for a purpose to the church. But this is a very specific purpose. In fact, this is many times called offering. You can hear it referred to in that church. It's giving beyond the tithe. It's, it's giving that maybe you have a family member in your, in, in, uh, in, your, in your family, and they just need some extra help. They're just in a season of life, and so you have some generosity that you help them out in one form or fashion. Uh, maybe you're... you're purposeful giving you're standing at starbucks and you can see a mom she's got two kids there and you can just tell she's about to scream with the two kids and you pay it forward and you pay for her starbucks that's purposeful giving 
We have all kinds of purposeful giving around here. We'll have our diaper drive. We'll have a food drive. And people bring specific things for that purposeful giving. You can walk out right now, and we're doing the Operation Christmas Child, and that's purposeful giving. It's something beyond what you put in the offering plate. It's beyond what you put in your tithe, and it's giving to something very specific and purposeful. Now, here's what we have to remember about purposeful giving. The mistake people do is they give purposeful giving instead of their tithe. Um, they give, I'm sorry, they give instead of rather than in addition to their tithe. So in other words, if I give $100 a week and that goes in the offering plate or that goes in my direct deposit or however I do that, and I'm like, well, I want to give the Operation Christmas Child, so I think I'll just give $75 this week because I'll use $25 to go to Operation Christmas Child. Your heart is still generous, absolutely for sure. No knock on that. But when you look in the Old Testament, there was the tithe and there was the offering. There was the percentage prioritized giving and there was that above and beyond. Here's what I've learned in my life about purposeful giving. And maybe this is just me, but for me, sometimes it gives me more of a feeling of joy than even my prioritized and my percentage giving. Because that's kind of, it's there, it's happening. Those percentage and prioritized, it's the priority and it's happening. And it's just, it happens every single week. It happens every single month. But the purposeful, I get to see something and my heart gets stirred and I get to take a step towards it in generosity. Christmas is coming up. Denise and I, we're going to do our budget. And we're going to say this much for the kids and, of course, three times as much for the grandchild. And we'll probably look at each other at this point in our life going, let's not buy each other for any, anything for each other this year because if we want something, we'll go get it. And so we won't budget anything for us. And we'll live by that. And I'll get a week before Christmas and I'll think, no, I want to buy her something. And I'll go look, and I'll look, and I'm going, no, I want to buy her something special. And I know what happens. I usually spend more on that unbudgeted gift than I would have if we would have budgeted something because there's something in me going, I can't let Christmas go by without giving her something. And so on Christmas morning, everybody will open their gifts, and I'll just be waiting for Denise to open hers because it's this thing that came from deep, like, oh, I want you to have this. Anybody been there before? That's what I think purposeful giving when it comes to generosity through God's venue. That there's this thing just going, okay, I give every week to the church and that's what I'm supposed to do because they use it for lots and lots of different ministries. But when I see those kids, Operation Christmas Child, there's just something going, I got to fill a box. No, I got to fill two boxes. No, I want to fill three boxes because your heart is stirred knowing these kids around the world that won't get anything for Christmas will get this Christmas box and they'll get the gospel in that. And so Christmas, or I'm sorry, purposeful giving is just that above and beyond what we normally do. Now, I have a video. I introduced you last week, this Homes for Hope that we're looking at, a very purposeful giving that we're going to participate as a church. I want you to just see this video to tell you more about this particular initiative that we want to do. comfortable coming down here, and especially being a part of this. Just to give back a little bit is uh, rewarding for me and it's also rewarding for the family. Just being here, um, I felt like I was working with my family. Um, well, I've never built a home before, so this is completely new to me, but I'm really excited to be here and, uh, and you know, to be helping people 
The thing I've enjoyed most about building a home is just seeing the transformation in the family. It's kind of like you, you give them hope back. And that's the power of Homes of Hope. We build a structure for those that own their own land but need a little bit of help with their house. Everyone was working together and it was just, it felt like we had known each other for years. It's just a huge blessing for us to come and serve. You get to help people out and it feels good to help. I can't think of anything better than that to do today. To feel close to people that I've just met 36 hours ago, it's, it's pretty amazing. opportunity to give and serve. This is what it means to give back, I think. So as we began this generosity series, we wanted to encourage us as a church to be generous in our tithe. That goes to the ongoing ministry, so many things that we do in the community, so many things that we do here, that makes sure we can do those. But we also want to make sure that our generosity is not just about us. Because the church's own heart is being shown going, are we willing to be generous outside our walls, places that we'll never have any part with after we give that generosity? And so we'll be teaming up with Homes for Hope. It's through YWAM. We're scheduling. It's probably going to be next November, and we'll take 15, 20, 25 people, and we get to be the hands and feet to build these homes. Now, it takes about $25,000 a home to build these. And so what we're in the process right now is part of our purposeful giving is that we are wanting to collect and fund those homes so we have the money ready to go when it's time to build that house. Now, last week I made a comment, and I know it might have been kind of confusing after I said it, so let me clarify. One of the things I said last week is it doesn't make sense that we would spend $25,000 on a generosity initiative outside the church when we're behind budget here at our church. And I had several people going, okay, that's kind of, can you clarify that? So let me explain. If you're new here, here's how the budgeting process works. Every year before our new budget year that starts in June, uh, we have some just really smart, wise financial men and women that get together and they determine a budget for the upcoming year. Now they look at past giving, they look at expected giving, they look at expenditures that we know we have to spend money on, they look at things that we want to do in the future. And so this past year they came up with a budget and in fact we increased our budget by about 9%. But here's where we are right now, we're actually about 11% behind reaching that particular budget. But look at it this way, we increased 9%, we're 11% behind, so really we're only about 2% behind in our normal giving compared to a year ago. We just looked at a very just kind of just hopeful way that we can do more and more things with our generosity. Now here's the good news. We also as a church, we look at our expenditures and we pull things back when we can to make sure we're living with our budget just like you do at your home. And we're actually spending less money than we're bringing in. So if you look at our balance sheet for the year, we're still doing pretty good as far as when you compare spending with actual income coming in. And so I didn't want to put a panic in everybody going, oh my gosh, we're going down the tubes. We don't have enough money to keep the lights on. We are doing good when that goes. 
but we also want to continue to be generous within the confines, within our tithe, because some of these things that we're not doing now, we want to do as we flip the calendar and turn into 2024. So just want to share that with you. Just going, hey, we're okay. We're making it. But we don't want to base our generosity on whether we're making it or not. Generosity comes out of the heart. And my prayer for you, my prayer for me, my wife, our family, is that we would always, always guard against affluenza. That we would guard ourselves from always wanting bigger barns to put more of my stuff. That our hearts would be simply saying, God, we trust you with our hearts. We trust you with our lives. We trust you with our finances. And we will generously give as you lead us to so we can be a part of what you're doing across the kingdom, both here at South Sub Church and around the world. And so this morning, I want to close. We're not bringing the band back up. I just want to close with praying. Would you just, would you bow your head where you are? And would you just simply ask God, God, how's my heart? God, would you show me my heart? the way you see it. Because as we said, this series is not about finances. This series is about our hearts being wholly his. And that's our prayer. And so, Father, we wrap up today and just saying it is hard to talk about money. It is stressful to talk about money. Um, and so, God, I, I just pray this, that we would continue to realize our money is your money, so we don't need to stress about it. And, God, I pray this for us as a church, that we would be a church that our hearts are wholly, completely yours. And then you, Lord Jesus, lead each person individually to the generosity, the place that you want them to go. And so our life is yours. And we pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.